So we're in the second of our self-control uh, weeks, so there's uh, four of these, and this one is titled The Grace of Self-Control. Now, in some ways, it's a miracle that I stand before you with a sermon prepared. You see, when I knew that the topic I was going to be preaching on was self-control and more specifically self-discipline, I thought, well, it's good to be really prepared for that, isn't it? So I thought, yep, let's make sure that I'm self-controlled, self-disciplined. Um, but then I came, down, uh, came to start writing it and uh, I was tired, so I put it off for a little bit longer. Uh, and then there were other competing priorities that I sort of had to do, some schoolwork or whatever, uh, so I put it off for a bit longer. And that just tends to happen in our lives, doesn't it? We've got this mind that says, I want to do this, but then our body says, no, I'm too tired, I don't feel like it at the moment. And it's sort of like there's a tension within us. Good intentions don't always result in good actions. If they did, we would achieve a lot. But this experience of intentions not resulting in, in actions, I don't think is just something that's peculiar to me or to you. I think it's something that's peculiar to everyone. Everyone experiences this. And sometimes I wonder whether it's just in this generation that we don't sort of carry out what we say we're going to do. Maybe it's because we are such a time, supposedly, a time-poor generation. We try and pack everything into our lives and when we pack it in, we say we're going to do something and then we just simply don't have time or we're too tired. And I'm often amazed at what um, other generations can achieve. I love sort of wood carvings and I marvel at the time and effort that would have gone into that. And I sort of look at my own life and I go, well, how would I pack anything more in? How did they achieve things like this? And I think of um, uh, times when people were probably more self-disciplined. I think of, you know, um, like big old family Bibles where people used to sit around and uh, read the Bible together because there was no television and whatever, um, and they were able to be self-disciplined in doing that. But the... Actually, I'll come to that in a moment. But the Bible suggests that... Um, this problem of our intentions not resulting in actions is not something that's just confined to our generation. It's something that's always been in place. In fact, in Romans, Paul says that what we should be doing, we often go and do the opposite. What we should be doing, we go and do the opposite. And it's sort of like, uh, we hear what we're going to do and for some reason there's a blockage and we want to run in the opposite direction and in some ways it would actually be far better if we didn't hear what we should have been doing. If we didn't hear it, we're more likely to do it rather than running in the opposite direction. And because of this, because of this desire of ours to turn away from what is good, turn away from what we desire to do, we often appalled at our actions. We are appalled at what we say we are appalled at what we think and we are appalled at what we do and we're appalled because we do it over and over and over again. We just keep doing what we shouldn't be doing or we don't do what we should be doing. And um, sometimes I think, okay, if I'm going to procrastinate, if I'm going to put off what I'm, I should be doing, then maybe I can outwit myself here. Maybe I can do something else in its place, which is still good. And so a few years ago, when I was trying to learn for uh, exams at a similar time that I was trying to write school reports, 
what I'd do is when I was supposed to be learning for exams, I'd write school reports, and then when it came time to write those school reports, I'd then learn for exams. And it became something that was quite successful for me. But it's, it's a crazy situation, isn't it, that I'm trying to outwit myself because I know that what I'm supposed to be doing, I don't want to do that. There's this barrier, this blockage that's preventing me. But it's, it's such a funny thing. We don't want to do what we are supposed to do. I remember all last year, looking, I, I like gardening, but I looked out at my front garden and um, there was a lot of overgrowth, there was a lot of things that needed to be cleared out. And even though I like gardening, I looked at it and I just kept putting it off and I kept putting it off. And it came to a time where I was about to leave, um, it was a Sunday, and after, um, after church I was supposed to be going to Canberra for, for Christmas. And when I got home from church, I should have jumped in the car and driven to Canberra, but instead I decided to pull out my garden. <laughs> it, it took probably a good three hours to do, and I sort of had to say to some of the neighbours, oh, can you take some of my greens, because I'd pulled out so much stuff. Um, I should have been going to Canberra at that time, but instead I decided to pull out my garden. What I should have been doing, I did the opposite. Um, some, I, I'm not a great lover of housework at the best of times, but if I'm supposed to be doing it, it's very unlikely that I'll be doing it. Um, <laughs> I find I'm far more productive when I'm supposed to be sleeping or just suppose, whatever it is, I'm supposed to be doing something else, I'm far more productive at it. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. He says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's saying we do want to do something with our mind and with our heart, we want to do it, but our flesh is stopping us. And so that's the idea that I want to tease out today. The difference between our mind and our flesh, or the mind and our body. Because with our mind, we are free. And um, what happens when we become Christians? Is suddenly, the Holy Spirit comes on us and we want to do the good thing. We want to do the right thing. We want to follow the law of God. In Psalm 1, it says... Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of, uh, with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm used to the other version of it. Or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. I mean, I hope many of us here will be able to say, yes, we do delight in the law of the Lord. With our mind, we want to do what God wants us to do. A similar thing is said in Psalm 40, but more succinctly, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. See, when we become Christians, we are transformed by the Spirit so that the law is within our heart and we want to do the right thing. And because of having a transformed mind and tra transformed heart, what that does in us is it makes us want to become more like Christ. We want to become holy. We want to become more like God day by day. And it's a wonderful thing. And that is why we put in place self-discipline. It's why we desire to be more holy, because we just want to be like Christ. So we put things in place in our life so that we can be moulded, that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. 
but it's at this point that it's a little difficult to understand. You see, on the one hand, we're told that when we start following Christ, we are pure. We are already holy. We are already righteous. And there is nothing that you could do to make you more righteous. You've been declared righteous by Christ. So on the one hand, there is that declaration. And on the other hand, well, the Bible sometimes tells us to become more holy, to become more pure, to become more righteous. So what's, what's all that about? Because it's not that we have to earn God's favour. I want to make that very clear. When we're talking about self-discipline, you are not going to be um, in any greater favour with God. You have already been declared to be righteous. You are already 100% loved by God. So He cannot be any more satisfied with us. But when we are self-disciplined, what we are doing is we are saying that our actions start to match up with who we already are in Christ. What we have been declared to be in Christ, our actions start to come together with that and match up to that, which is a wonderful thing when that happens. In Ephesians, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And when we put into place self-discipline, we're actually living up to who we are, living up to who we're created to be because we are wonderful creations of God. We have a high calling and self-discipline enables us to live up to that high calling. I remember a, um, a number of years ago at a teacher's conference that I went to, we were talking about behaviour management and just one um, section talked about the fact that when a child does something wrong, we want to encourage them by saying, well, that's not like you. Because your character and your person is better than that and your behaviour is not matching up to who you are. And that's a similar idea that's at, uh, that's at work here. When we put into place self-discipline, we're realising that our actions and our behaviour are not matching up to the high calling that we have. Therefore, we put these things into place. It is not like us to be sinning all the time because we have a high calling. It is not like us to be sinning all the time because Christ has made us righteous. In 1 Peter, it talks about this high calling that we have. And it says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. It's a quote from Leviticus. And the quote can actually be read in um, three different tenses. But um, be holy because I am holy. We are living up to what Christ has for us. We are the people of God. And because he is holy, so too we should be holy. And that is why we put self-discipline into place. But it goes on and it says um, something about this foreign land. And it's really important for understanding what's going on here. It says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. 
This idea of living in a foreign land is telling us that when we're living according to the flesh, we're living in a way that will pass away. Whatever we're doing according to the flesh is only fleeting. Whatever we're doing according to the flesh is perishable. And it's saying our lives should be lived in such a way that we are focused on eternity. We are disciplining ourselves so their actions and our behaviour are living out eternity rather than just living in the here and now, the things that will pass away. And we could use an analogy of building a house and we'll um, sort of add to this. Now, I'm not good at doing two things at once, but I'll, I'll see how I go. So the analogy is that um, if we um, build a house out of straw, Straw is something that is perishable. Straw is something uh, that will pass away. We could go with the story of the wolves or something like that, couldn't we? Um, three little pigs. But um, if you build your house out of um, rock or out of brick, it is something that's going to last forever. So the Bible is saying to us, if we build our houses out of straw, um, that is like just living from the flesh, living our natural way of doing things. But if we build our houses out of brick, that is like putting self-control into our lives so we are living for eternity. No, I didn't do a very good job of doing two things at once. I was supposed to be talking while I was nailing. All I'm hoping is that this is going to be straighter than the one that was here that was annoying a lot of people. Thank you to Matt who uh, fixed that up earlier today. Uh, this is a wooden house. Cam, I would have preferred bricks because it would have worked much better with my analogy. So um, hopefully this is just the inside frame and I look forward to seeing the bricks that we're adding at a later stage. Now, so far this life sounds easy. You see, the Holy Spirit's within us. Uh, we've got changed hearts because our ho the Holy Spirit wi is within us. Our minds are changed. We want to do the will of God and the law of God. We want to become more like Christ and therefore we discipline our bodies to focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. Well, it's not that easy, is it? You see, if it was that easy, we wouldn't be doing four weeks on self-control. And if it was that easy, then there wouldn't be thousands and thousands of books written about self-control because we just would have nailed it straight away. If it was that easy, we'd be able to commit to reading our Bibles and it would happen. And we, when it happens, you know, we'd become more holy. We'd become more and more like Christ. We'd be able to commit to a life of prayer and it would happen. We wouldn't struggle with it. We wouldn't keep putting it off. We'd be able to commit to a life of hospitality or to being kind to particular people that we say we're going to. Uh, we'd be able to commit to being publicly Christian, just not privately Christian. But we say it with our words, we want to do it with our mind, we want to do it with our heart, but then our bodies don't want to do it. You see, when the crunch comes, we appear to become like Samson with his hair cut, or he has no strength left. Or perhaps we're a... Oops... I'm a bit behind, aren't I? There's some lovely a straw house and a... Um, yeah, okay. Now we're up to the right. Okay. Or perhaps you can't become like a boxer at the end of the fight 
who has absolutely no energy left. I reckon for some people that would be the key one. You just feel flat, you feel tired, and therefore you just can't be bothered doing what you said you were going to do. We become frozen, we become fatigued. But I reckon it's worse than not just carrying out what we said we were going to do. I know when I say I'm going to read more of my Bible or whatever it is, um, that I get to the point where I actually do less of it because I should be doing more of it. There's this mental block that happens. And I feel like had we not made these commitments in the first place, we'd actually be in a better position than having set this goal for ourselves because we run from it. So our mind is free, our body is not. Our mind is free, but our body returns to its default position. And its default position is one where we don't want to know God. We want to run in the opposite direction to God. And this is what Paul is getting at when he says he has the desire to do good, but he cannot carry it out. He says, um, and halfway down there, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. We can put this as a tongue twister. I do do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. If you say that 10 times really fast, then uh, you'd be doing well. Um, but this is, I think the NIV is probably slightly clearer than that. For I do not do the good I want to do. So we set out to do the good and we don't do it. But then there's the opposite of that too. The evil I do not want to do, well, this I keep doing. We constantly re return to our default position. And it's at this point that Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And this is the critical point if we are un to understand self-control. See, Paul realizes that he doesn't have the resources within himself. His mind says yes, but his body says no. You see, we call this thing self-discipline, becoming more like Christ. But the self, we need to realize we cannot do it on our own. We do not have the resources from within ourselves. Discipline, you see, must come about through grace. Discipline cannot be done completely out of our own resources. And the story here is similar, with this need of grace into our lives, this is similar to the story of salvation. When Christ came to you, he came to you when you were utterly helpless. He came to you when you were completely facing the opposite direction. He came to you when you were running away from him. Grace comes to us, completely external to us, and we do not, in that initial instance, participate. I'll get to our participation in a moment. But we must see that grace comes to us, not through our choosing, but grace comes to us as grace, something that is external to us. And sometimes we need to um, refocus on that as Baptists. Yes, certainly we do respond to the knock. Okay, In Revelation 3, it talks about Jesus knocking on the door and our our opening of that door to him. 
But Jesus is the one to knock. He is the one that is showing grace to us in the first place. And in John 15, it says, I, um, you did not choose me, but I chose you, putting the emphasis on Christ's choosing. Grace must come first. We are incapable of ourselves to receive salvation. It is only by Christ's grace that comes to us that we can receive it. And so then when we start talking about self-discipline, it's very, very similar. We've, we've become Christians, but when we become Christians, we still have this battle and we still need grace continually to carry out what we want to do. Our default position is still to run away from this self-discipline. Our default position is still to run away from the direction that Christ has us. And that's with our body. Yes, our mind has been transformed, but our body is still weak and it will remain weak until Christ comes again. So we don't have the resources from within ourselves. We need grace. And I wish to use a story to illustrate this point about grace. I heard this story a while ago about a man, and let's call him Wayne. Wayne was trying to be self-disciplined uh, to lose weight. In realising uh, his need for grace, he asked a friend to keep him accountable. Fred was this friend. So every week, Fred would meet with Wayne to keep him accountable for losing weight. But Fred was a little inexperienced at keeping someone accountable. And Fred, when asked what he was doing to keep him accountable, he said that he met with him to keep him accountable. Well, what does that mean? And when pressed, Fred would say that he would make sure he was doing what he said he was doing, which he was not. Now, for some of us here, this might work. If you've got um, something that you want to be disciplined at, if you tell someone else about it, that will keep you accountable. But this didn't work for Wayne. Unfortunately, he was not losing weight. He tried to eat less, but he got hungry. He tried to exercise, but he got tired. So when Fred met with Wayne, he kept him accountable by telling him to try harder and harder. I just want to pause at that point. If you're hearing that self-discipline just means trying harder, then you've got it wrong. Self-discipline doesn't mean just try harder. Self-discipline means that we need to accept grace. So unfortunately, all Fred was doing was being to... Uh, well, sorry. Unfortunately, all that Fred was being to Wayne was the law. Guilt upon guilt was poured on him, but, there was, uh, but it was to no avail in terms of his weight loss. You see, when there is only law, there is only guilt. The law condemns because the flesh is weak. It's not any deficiency in the law. It's the deficiency in our flesh. And as we have already seen, when we hear the law, we go against it, even if our heart and our mind want to do the right thing. And so Wayne became more and more aware of his failures, but powerless to do anything about them. But grace, see, grace is something external to ourselves. We cannot find it within. So in order for Wayne to achieve his goals, he needs to find resources outside of himself. If he already had the resources to resist food, to exercise more, he probably wouldn't have become overweight 
in the first place. When it was pointed out to Fred that Wayne needed grace, not law, he tried two things. First, Fred invited Wayne around to his house, not to make him accountable, but to eat with him. You see, as weird as it sounds, Wayne needed to learn how to eat. He needed to learn to eat better food and to stop eating so much, and Fred was able to do this alongside of him, being the external grace for him. He was able to elevate Wayne to meet Fred's own example. Second, Fred started exercising with Wayne. Again, Wayne did not know how to exercise. Fred showed him how, not by showing off or running ahead, but just by walking with him. Fred was Wayne's strength, his example, his motivation. He was the structure around him that was external to him and was the thing that was able to take him from where he was to where he needs to be. Fred was Wayne's grace. Although we talk about self-discipline, it does not mean that we, it needs to be done alone. God has made us in community partly because he knows that we don't have the resources within ourselves. We need grace. So what does this mean for us? How, is this, how can we apply this practically? Well, first of all, we do actually need some structure around us when we are applying ourselves to any sort of self-discipline. We certainly need the Spirit involved and we need to ask the Spirit to come into our lives to give us this strength. We need to know that we are doomed to failure if we do not ask the Spirit to be involved. Um, interestingly, we could actually talk... Uh, I'm talking particularly about um, moral self-discipline here. Um, I'm talking particularly about becoming more and more like Christ. And no one is equipped in and of themselves to do that. We absolutely must invite the Spirit in. We could, however, talk about um, the natural, uh, a natural level of self-discipline. So a, a great musician or a, a talented, outstanding athlete might be able to achieve their goals with strict discipline. But I would still contend that they need an external influence or a number of external influences in their lives in order to meet their goals. I don't think that they have the resources within. I'm, I'm going to use the example of um, reading the Bible and how we might apply this idea of we need grace to reading a Bible. You see, when, when we struggle to read the Bible, it, it's, it's not unexpected. It has so many genres in it, which are often very unfamiliar. For example, the way Genesis is written is very different from the other books of the Bible. And if you don't understand the genre or the type of writing that Genesis is, then it can be very hard to interpret it. Um, if you read the New Testament and pick that up, you'll find allusions to prophecies or even to Greek thought. I can't remember the percentage, but if you read um, the book of Hebrews, it's got 70% or so um, of either direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, then that becomes very difficult to read and understand what is going on there. Well, let's say, though, that you started reading the Bible. If you got through Genesis 
um, well, if you started through Genesis, you might get to the story of Abraham, the great father of faith who was about to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. And maybe you get through that and go, okay, I'm not quite sure what's happening there, but you might get to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and maybe the annihilation of them, you go, okay, yep, let's just keep reading and see where I get to. At some point, you're going to get to Leviticus. And if you get to Leviticus, even if you've had a fantastic sermon series at Mount Gambier Baptist Church to guide you through, it's still going to be a big struggle. You see, it's a struggle because we sometimes don't have the resources within ourselves. We need grace. We need someone else who is a talented, who knows how to read the Bible, sometimes to read it alongside of ourselves. There are a number of people in this church that would be able to do that. A number of people who have had the self-discipline over many years to be reading their Bible, that understand how, understands how Leviticus fits into the whole grand scheme of the Bible history, who could actually and would be honoured to sit down with you and read with you, even for a short time, to meet once a week and open the Bible up to you. And we have a precedent here um, in Acts 6. You might remember the Ethiopian who was reading his Bible and he didn't know, he didn't understand the words that were in there. And Philip was able to come alongside of him and explain it to him. Philip was grace to this Ethiopian. To this Ethiopian. Now, I must point out that I'm not denying that the Word of God meets people where they're at. I'm an absolute firm believer in that. It is a dynamic word and when you open the Bible and read, I believe that God can speak to you through that. I'm certainly not saying that there's a um, particular knowledge level that you have to get to uh, when reading your Bible so that you can then help other people read it. I truly believe the analogy that the Bible is a river in which a lamb can wade and an elephant can swim. But I am saying that we cannot do things out of our own strength. I am saying that we need grace to come into our lives because self-discipline requires grace. If I might turn now to speak to those who are mature in their self-discipline and there are plenty of us here today. I want you to consider what God has graciously given to you over the years, how you have been affected by grace whether that is in um, your Bible reading, your hospitality that you're showing to others. And I wonder how you can then be grace to the next generation of people. How is it that you can show them how to read the Bible? How is it that you can show them hospitality so that one day they will be able to um, have an outflowing of hospitality for others? I wonder how you can be grace to them um, if you have been a leader in the past but uh, um, I guess have retired from that leadership position, how can you be training the next generation to raise up the next generation in our church? How is it that you can elevate them in their self-discipline? How is it that you can be grace to them? See, there is no retiring in the Christian walk. The time is now to be grace to others because the self-discipline of others needs grace. I want to point out that we are not standing still in this. Grace comes to us, but we are not passive. We are active along with the Spirit. We are cooperating with the Spirit. We are the ones that respond to the knock, remember. 
And I want to go to a quote by um, C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He says, you will not gain holiness standing still. Sin grows without sowing. It's our default position. We don't have to work at sin. It just happens. But holiness needs cultivation. So we do need to work in cooperation with the Spirit because it is we that show love to others with the Spirit helping us. It is we who show compassion with the Spirit guiding us. It is we who use gracious words, completely dependent on the Spirit. It's just we don't do these things out of our own resources. Friends, it's a great thing to cooperate with the Spirit. It's a great thing to realise that it is not our own resources that we do this in. There will be a great harvest that will flow, a great harvest from our sowing, and it will be not a temporal harvest, but it will be an eternal harvest. It is wonderful to walk in step with the Spirit, to live out our true nature, and instead of hearing, you're not like that, we want to hear that we are like that, we are living up to our high calling because of the discipline that we have put in place in our lives. Sure, a life of self-discipline is hard, but it is urgently needed in this generation that succumbs to brevity, to living for the moment and to bodily temptation. We have seen that to achieve this, to live in step with whom God has created us to be, requires us to see that we must receive grace. We cannot do it from our own resources. But we do it cooperating with the Spirit so that we live up to our high calling. Self-discipline requires grace. Let us pray. Oh, Father, you are a great God who has poured out your Spirit into our hearts. You have poured out your Spirit into our minds so that we just delight to do your will, O oh Lord. But we are frustrated. We are constantly frustrated because our body is so weak. We hear what we need to do. We set ourselves goals of what we want to do, but our body doesn't live up to that. Help us, Lord, to ask you daily that the Spirit may come into our lives. Help us, Lord, not to uh, uh, be reliant on ourselves, but to be completely reliant on you at every turn. And Lord, we know that there are all sorts of people that you bring into our lives. You bring them into our lives so that they can be grace to us. Help us not to um, go through our battles alone, but help us to see that um, those people in and around our lives are the ones who will journey with us, the ones who can be grace to us, the ones that will lift us up to the high calling that we have. So Lord, as we go out during this week, help us to remember that we don't need to do it in our own strength, that we don't need to find resources from within ourselves, but that we must constantly turn to you, seeking the Spirit's guidance in all things. Through Christ we pray. Amen.